all all odds that have been set against it, and it will continue to thrive, but it really needs support to thrive, and we're in very fertile soils here in Berkeley, but please, please show us that you, show us that you want us to stay and you want us to grow healthily. We are really a diamond in the rough here when you look at the whole world. And if you, you know, come and join us by picking up your phone, 510-848-5732 or 1-800-439-5732. I thank you to all the listeners that have pledged throughout the pledge drive. And to the folks who are on the phone lines right now, we wouldn't be here without you. But there are some of you that have been listening for years and years, and we'd like you to just pick up the phone, dig deep in those pockets, and just understand that without you, there wouldn't be a KPFA. So we're at about... 3.30 right now, so we're going to sign off. So so good talking to all y'all out there, and uh, do stay tuned. Stone's Throw is up next here on KPFA or KPFB in Berkeley or KFCF in Fresno. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture, drop the shadow out of sight. No shadows here, folks. No, indeed. No, indeed. I was listening to the um, uh, woman who was pitching before this, and I thought to myself, I thought, I'm not a diamond in the rough. I'm Pure Rhinestone. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw every Tuesday at 3.30. I give it a go, as Pogo would say. From here on down, it's uphill all the way. That's my show. Yes, indeed. I like the theme from Berthold Brecht's Three Penny Opera, Riff of Weimar, you know, those terrible days. Uh, before the Second World War and the rise of fascism, it does seem to come in waves like the ocean, folks. Um, I have too much stuff here today. I don't have a premium, and that's the truth. So, well, I have a note here. It says, yes, it says, it says, for goodness sakes, Jennifer, repeat the telephone numbers often and slowly. So I'm going to repeat them once on the off chance that anyone out there would like to subscribe. <laughs> on the theory that I'm the gift. How about that? Yes, KPFA is the premium. I'm the gift. That's a tough one, Jennifer. I don't know if you can pull that one off. Um, the money numbers are 510. That's in the five and dime area code, right? 510-848-5732. Or the 100 numbers, yes, 800 numbers. one 800 439 5732 or 1-800-HEY-KPFA. It's the same thing. Hey with an E-H-E-Y-K-P-F-A. Anyway, I will try to repeat those constantly or from time to time, folks. But uh, I was told that I could do without a premium this this uh, this time. I hope it's okay. I hope that the money will be made in any case. But 
I'm sure for the next marathon, I can find you a terrific book, something, uh, something glorious. But uh, today, I do not have anything except what's in front of me. It begins with an apology. Last week, I mentioned that David Frost was trying to make the world safe for satire. Remember David Frost used to have a show called uh, That Was the Week That Was, and he's come back to public broadcasting, and I do apologize for that. I, uh, I think it was about as lame a production as I have seen. I don't like to blame him, but perhaps, you know, he should uh, <laughs> he should wrap it up. There was just one little segment. It was a takeoff on the Dr. Seuss book, uh, Green Eggs and Ham, you know, Sam I Am. And it was just sort of a, a spin, you know. I am not Saddam, I am. And weapons of mass destruction or distraction and that sort of thing. But other than that, um, the rest of it just uh, washed, washed right down the tube. Uh, I did turn on... C-SPAN for a few moments this week. I'm trying to get away from mass media, but I wanted to see Ted Kennedy put it out there, and he did uh, call the ongoing Bush war in Iraq, quote, mindless, senseless, needless, and reckless. Got that right, Ted? Uh-huh. We all know that the left is right and the right is wrong. Oh, the Irish. Ted Kennedy does have a way with words. He's not a poet, but he, his struggles, uh, at least the old boy is putting in his oar. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright is saying much the same thing. Is this the beginning of a trend, a possibility for a U-turn in the national rhetoric? The, um, CNN conversation is possible. Better late than never, isn't it? I suppose it is, but the dead are still dead, and blue meanies are still mean, as Molly Ivan says. These boys don't want to govern. <laughs> they want to rule. Mm -hmm. There is a distinction. Um, our insular Bush administration seems to be talking only to itself, you know. It's like it's looking at itself in the mirror, listening only to its own desires, impulses, um, not very practical, boys. Uh, yes, cruising for a bruising, as we used to say. They are interested only in freedom for the few, the few rich folks, super rich folks, those who live in the bush bubble. Ted Kennedy once called um, that ruling class clique, uh, he called them billionaire Benedict Arnolds, a nice phrase. Uh, it's for sure, folks, the ruling class appears to be winning the class war. They are um, bad Americans, not patriots at all, in my view. Their notions of a shared fate do not include fellow citizens, yes. Become consumers and clients, that's all we are. I remember years ago when Bush the Lesser, as Arundhati Roy refers to the present president, Bush the Lesser was working for his father's election to the presidency. Everything I read about that clan, the uh, Bush clan, stressed loyalty above all else. Not loyalty to democracy or to country or to the uh, 
American ideal, but loyalty to plan, to the family group, you know, the sort of things, that feudal thing, tribal thing. Uh, as that old political poet Gertrude Stein once wrote, the feudal days were the days of the fathers. This administration is not just secretive and insular. It seems to slam the door even on the mainstream media. They're hiding out. <laughs> I remember, as I was thinking about Gertrude Stein saying that feudal days were the days of the fathers, Gertrude went on to write that that family identity, she wrote, yes, family identity she could do without. Um, but, of course, like all, well, like so many bourgeois folk, she accepted or she took the family money. She accepted the support they gave her. Her brothers uh, handled the family money. Um she was a fiscal conservative, like so many liberals. She wanted social or personal freedom, but, you know, she needed the um, the uh, fiscal uh, underpinnings. Her family money allowed her, you know, to have an anarchist or uh, free free living life in Paris there. This is an old dilemma. I remember we used to say that, yeah, a liberal was someone who wanted social freedom without, uh, you know, touching the money. But we know now that it's an open secret. Well, it's the old order always holds the purse strings. That's what power means. I remember economists trying to explain this to me for years, you know, uh, saying that the culture wars didn't matter. All that mattered was the, the money. And I get it, um, but... <laughs> It's getting harder and harder um, to understand um, why this administration is willing to risk. Well, they're, they're risking um, the guillotine, for goodness sakes. Uh, uh, they won't even talk to that old veteran reporter, Helen Thomas, I'm told. Uh, Bush comes out and does his little dance, you know, the drill. He looks tough, makes wisecracks, and then assumes the adversarial position, just in case anybody should ask him a direct question. Uh, I can't figure out how these guys are getting away with it. I mean, this is my country. Uh, no one speaks up except maybe Amy Goodman, you know. She, <laughs> she, she can hardly get in the room there. These days, I find that uh, my anger is getting me down, making me sick a little bit. I... I gotta be careful. My doctor gave me antidepressants, but I just threw those away because I figured it out. I'm not depressed. That's, that's a game they play on us. I'm not depressed. I'm discouraged. I can't believe it can happen here. Ah, uh, yes, we must not despair. Yes, we must go on, go on. Uh, I have a little piece here from a friend on the subject of, uh, Yes, on the subject of anger, a friend recommends a local lecturer, a seminar. Uh, it's, it's at the Elephant Pharmacy. I've discovered the Elephant Pharmacy in Berkeley. They have all the holistic New Age stuff you need. Uh, it's expensive, but let's see. What is it she's given me here? She recommends Leonard Schiff's Transforming Anger Workshop. So I go for that, yes. I'm going to transmute that anger. <laughs> yes. 
I don't know. I don't know whether it can be done, folks, but I'm sure we should all try uh transmute our anger into compassion. I used to say that compassion is, after all, only enlightened self-interest, you know. Um, angry people aren't much fun to live with. It's the, the Buddha bit. We must ask what unmet need is beneath the anger. Uh, trying to think, what is the unmet need behind the Bush administration? Isn't it possibly just plain greed? That's not a need. Greed is just greed. Anyway, uh, let's see. Leonard Schiff's Transforming Anger Workshops are at the Elephant Pharmacy. Saturday, November the 1st, one thirty to 4.30. And also at the Open Secret Bookstore. I like that, right? It is an open secret, folks. That's on Monday, November 3. 3 November, uh, 6 to 9 p.m. in San Rafael. Anyway, let me just give you the phone number in case you're interested in transformative seminars, folks. Kim McMillan is the person to contact in the Five and Dime area code. Her number is 525-3948-525-3948. You know how that is, folks. Uh, Anger is a problem in every part of our life. Uh, I get up every morning and look in the mirror and say to myself, I will not throttle anyone today. With any luck, I will not even hurt anyone's feelings. First of all, do no harm. It's a tricky one. Um, There is, of course, a time to get angry. The great Denise Levertov now passed on. Um, She had a great line, I remember. uh, We all used to argue whether or not we were allowed to write political poetry. And she said, there comes a time when only anger is love. Of course, yes, what is it? Thoreau says the only cure for love is more love. It's it's linguistics. It's also practical stuff, folks. Uh, you know, we all lose it. And we have to, to learn, first of all, how to breathe. Yes, um, this guy, these transforming anger workshops, and it seems to concentrate on the teachings of the Dalai Lama and... Uh, <laughs> the workshop has been recommended by the Chief Justice of the Arizona Supreme Court. How about that? <laughs> Once again, it's at the Elephant Pharmacy, Saturday, November the 1st. And you can call Kim McMillan. Uh, I remember once, I've thought about this issue all my life, I think, having been born angry. I saw a picture of myself once at age of about a year and a half and... That was the most ferocious little monkey. God knows what my last life was like. Uh, but I have had some psychiatric experience. I had a friend once, a real screwball. She was a holy terror. And I knew her history, and I had known her in college and over the years, and because she had revealed to me in various oblique fashion just how much abuse and deprivation she'd suffered as a child, I was never afraid. I just... Uh, just simply walked into her with her arms flailing. I would just grab hold of her. And that did the trick in this particular case. She would go berserk, quite berserk. Uh, now, this isn't always possible. Uh, you know, uh, what's the line? Pick them up when they cry. Uh, sometimes when they're older, it doesn't quite work. But you have to know your patient. Now, this woman 
was capable of real violence. She had to be disarmed several times. Uh, literally, I had to do that, take away the, uh, the knife. But uh, she always just collapsed in tears when she was embraced and understood when someone uh, was willing to grieve with her. Now, of course, it would have been nice if someone had done that when she was a child at the developmental moment. Perhaps then she would not have died alienated and in torment. Uh, I was thinking of that um, recently. I saw a child on the bus being abused and yelled at and humiliated. And all I could think of, rather than scolding the parent or getting angry, the parent was out of it. The woman was just stressed out of her mind. And I just started crying along with the child. And this, of course, embarrassed the mother out of... The, the momentary anger and she looked at me and everyone else <laughs> got confused but it it worked it worked for a minute uh i think that my own little angers i i need to laugh at them what is that good line don't sweat the small stuff but the great anger the roar in our hearts and the the storm uh, i can feel inside me when i witness Vast injustice, you know, man's inhumanity to man, and particularly man's inhumanity to woman, the rest of it. This stuff needs to be channeled, uh, transmuted. Uh, it's why I began to write. It's partly for lament. As a poet, I, I've been one of those, well, there are two kinds of poets. They say that those who do the praise song and those who do the lament. I'm mostly in the lament category, but... Also, I like to uh, to laugh, to imagine ways we can transcend. As my mother used to say, that's what we're put on earth to do, transcend. Try to see the joke, the absurdity. Uh, as Molly Ivan says, you have got to laugh or you will go insane. Lift up the spirit, keep trying. Find your inner terrorist. <laughs> Liberate your inner terrorist, you know. And then train or educate her. I always turn immediately to um, to Beckett, to Samuel Beckett. Here is my little, I was looking here uh, in my Samuel Beckett play, Waiting for Godot, one of my favorites. I see that it is being revived in San Francisco. I highly recommend you run over and see Waiting for Godot if you're one of the few people on this planet who has yet to see that play. Um, Half a century ago, it was a revelation to me. I read it over and over and over. Uh, here we are. Here we are at the end, yes. I don't know which of the two men I identify with more, but they have this existential angst that just goes on and on and on. Here is uh, Vladimir. He says, I don't know what to think anymore. Was I sleeping while the others suffered? Am I sleeping now? Tomorrow when I wake or think I do, what shall I say of today? That with Estragon, my friend, at this place, until the fall of night, I waited for Godot, and that he spoke to us Probably, but 
in all that, what truth will there be? He, Estragon, when he wakes, he'll know nothing he'll tell me about the blows he received. And I'll give him a carrot. A stride of a grave and a difficult birth. Down in the hole, lingeringly, the grave digger puts on the forceps. We have time to grow old. The air is full of our cries. Ah, but habit is a great deadener. At me, too, someone is looking. Of me, too, someone is saying he is sleeping, he knows nothing. Let him sleep on. I can't go on. What have I said? I'll go on and on and on goes waiting for good over and over. Repeats and repeats and repeats. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, dear, yes, I love the dialogue. I used to practice it with a friend of mine uh, when they tried to eat the carrot. Yes, I love it. Uh, the uh, the two fellows, Vladimir and Estragon, are talking about whether or not they're tied to Godot. And uh, Estragon says, We're not tired? Vladimir, I don't hear a word you're saying. I'm asking you if we're tied. Tied? Tired. What do you mean, tied? Down, but to whom? By whom? To your man. To Godot? Tied to Godot? What an idea. No question of it. For the moment. His name is Godot? I think so. Fancy that. Yestergon raises what remains of the carrot by the stub of leaf and twirls it before his eyes. Ah, oh, funny. The more you eat, the worse it gets. Vladimir, with me, it's just the opposite. In other words, I get used to the muck as I go along. Is that the opposite? Question of temperament. <laughs> of character. Nothing you can do about it. No use struggling. One is what one is. No use wiggling. The essential doesn't change. Nothing to be done. Offers the remains of carrot to Vladimir. Like to finish it? <laughs> I think that Beckett saved my life when I was younger. I always thought of Samuel Beckett as my mother figure and Gertrude Stein as my father figure. They helped me to start laughing till I couldn't stop the absurdity of our existence, especially today in this mess we're in. Uh, once again, I need to ask you all to subscribe to KPFA. What I brought today, here the time is all up. <laughs> I love it. My time is up. And what I brought today to share with you is a piece in the New Yorker about Pauline Kael, because those of you who've been around for half a century, like me, know that Pauline Kael used to be a film critic here at the station. Her departure was pretty funny. There's a tape that she made when she left. I was looking around for it. I'm going to use it one of these days soon. Oh, uh, but <laughs> it was somewhat problematic. Um, but she did do film reviews here for many years, and uh, she uh, is remembered in a, well, let's call it a homage. They call it personal history. In the current New Yorker by the New Yorker critic David Denby, 
course, now, David has a number of issues with Pauline. A, his article is titled, My Life as a Paulette. Let's see, what's the date? It's the current, October 20th, New Yorker. And it's, yes, it's got a rather harsh picture of Pauline. It's funny, I brought with me as well an article from a local paper from September 2003 from the California Monthly, sent to me by a listener. It's called The House on Oregon Street where creative energies ran amok. It's written by David Pollock and sent to me by a kind listener, um, Bob Nelson, a volunteer here at the station. And the article in the California Monthly is about Pauline Kale in Berkeley when she lived on Oregon Street. I, too, once lived on Oregon Street. It's a lovely picture of her brown shingle mansion and uh, all about... Her life and the, uh, I would say the, uh, uh, her mentoring of all the young creative people in town. There's a beautiful picture here of Pauline. Garden of Delight, it says. Pauline Kale outside her house on Oregon Street in the early 1960s. And, uh, it's funny, it compares in an interesting way with the article in the New Yorker, which of course has the New Yorker's satirical spin, it is a kind, or I think David Denby is more than willing to admit that he's still trying to please Pauline Kale, that he even wondered whether she would have liked uh, her obituary as written by him when she uh, died. Anyway, I recommend this to you if you are interested in the life and times of Pauline Kale. I remember... I did not really know her well. I asked her once for a line to put on the back of my book, Mind Over Media, which was all about movies. She wrote me back a very kind letter. It uh, was a rejection, but perhaps, uh, if this article is right, perhaps she was quite sincere. She said, uh, for goodness sakes, don't uh, don't put me on the book. She said, they'll call you a kaolite or something. She said, just use your own witty phrases on the book she said uh they'll attribute things to you that you never dreamed of so it was perhaps the most thoughtful rejection she um uh seems to have been the sort of person who took everyone to her bosom and then of course later when they didn't quite agree with her um the relationships would would change, but I don't know. This is one man's point of view, David Denby, and I think he's very self-effacing. He seems to be more than willing to admit that maybe his work wasn't up to much and that maybe some of the things she said were quite true. <laughs> anyway, I always had trouble with the actual content of Pauline Gale's reviews, much as I admired her incredible wit and charm uh I just didn't agree with her about movies. I guess that's what it was. And as we all know, movies have become a kind of new religion. Uh, here's what she says about the sainted Angmar Bergman. She writes that he had become a tiresome deep thinker of second-rate thoughts, the Billy Graham of the post-analytic set. Well, of course, for those of us who still think Angmar Bergman changed our lives, 
that is a hard, uh, harsh blow. Um, let's see. Once again, this is the story of a short friendship and a long obsession. My Life as a Paulette, Personal History by David Denby, in the current October 20th New Yorker. Highly recommended, folks. Um, maybe next week I will have time to read you some of the the juicy particulars. Uh, I think possibly Pauline Kael qualifies as an authentic renegade, an authentic anarchist. Hard to find these days, folks. Very hard indeed. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air, not this Thursday, but next Tuesday at this same time at 3.30. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow out of What's the answer to the Bush administration's actions in the United States and abroad? Is impeachment the answer? That's the question being asked by Cynthia McKinney, former congresswoman from Georgia, as she appears in a public forum Tuesday, October 28th, at the Marin Academy in San Rafael. I'm Larry Bensky. I'll be in dialogue with Cynthia McKinney Tuesday, October 28th at 7.30 as we discuss the Bush administration's knowledge of the events of 9-11, its actions in Afghanistan and Iraq, and the budget crisis here in the United States. Should he be impeached? We'll be taking questions from you in the audience as well. That's Tuesday, October 28th, 7.30, the Marin Academy New Gym in downtown San Rafael, a benefit for the Marin Peace and Justice Coalition and Marin Students United. Thank you.